say just a few things about myself and the organisation I'm uh, representing here and working for. Uh, the Institute of Economic Affairs is Britain's oldest free market think tank set up in the 1950s by a fellow called Anthony Fisher. He'd made a fortune after the war uh, using his demob money to set up Buxted chickens. So he's the man who invented the mass-produced chicken uh, and is responsible for turning chicken from being a luxury meat uh, into uh, a cheap and everyday one, uh, which saved the lives of a lot of rabbits, given that that was the cheap meat that it replaced, apart from those few of us who still like rabbits and prefer it. Um, now, and uh, we are basically a free market think tank, as I say, which advocates the study and the use of markets to uh, see how they can be used to uh, solve social problems. Uh, what I'm going to talk about tonight is the more general question, however, not just economics, as we'll see, but that of what libertarianism is. About myself, well, I'm actually a historian, uh, despite working for an organization with economics in the title, although I have an interest in economics. Uh, it's history that is the discipline I originally come to. Uh, I live in Manchester, uh, although I work in London these days. Uh, I have a house in Manchester which is worth about 160,000 quid, which if I sold it would probably buy me a one-bedroom flat in Hackney if I was lucky. Uh, so uh, it just doesn't make sense for me to move down south. I'm an example of the macroeconomic distortions uh, produced in Britain by the planning system, in fact. Uh, I also uh, wouldn't like to move for another reason, which is that I'm an ardent supporter of the Manchester football team as opposed to the one from near Manchester that plays in red. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I have uh, done various things in my time. Uh, I've taught courses on history of crime, uh, history of the devil, uh, and a number of other subjects, including world history. Uh, but I've always had a long-term interest in classical liberalism, libertarianism, call it what you will. So what I want to do, as I said, is to say something about, well, what is libertarianism? Also, what is it not? Uh, because this term seems to have a rather vague sort of definition in the contemporary British mind. Uh, when Facebook first came out a few years ago, being an American product, it only had like four particular kind of political opinions you could assign to yourself. Uh, one of which, however, was libertarian, which shows that in the United States, at any rate, uh, people had a rough idea of what the term means. Uh, over here in the United Kingdom, although the word is beginning to achieve some currency, uh, it hasn't yet achieved that kind of general recognition as a kind of distinct and recognizable uh, political position. And a lot of people still seem to think that it's a shorthand for selfish bastard, basically, uh, which is something I, I hope to show it's not, uh, something else, in fact. Uh, so there is a distinct position, uh, and I want to explain what it is, but also say what it's not. One of the things that should come out from my remarks is that it's not the same thing as free market conservatism. Uh, that's a different and distinct political uh, position. Uh, and it's also not the same as certain kinds of uh, libertarian socialism, uh, again, for other reasons I think should become obvious. Before I do go on, I should say something about the nature of the word itself, because I'm not actually a fan of the word. Uh, it's an ugly word. Um, it's also uh, a word which has a distinct history, and for anyone who knows anything about the history of the word, it means that you're an anarchist. Uh, libertarian historically meant a communist anarchist of the Peter Kropotkin variety, uh, and uh, that's why they get very upset that the word has now been taken away from them. Uh, and it is true that some libertarians are anarchists, but not all of them are, and so it's a bit misleading. Uh, I sometimes use the term classical liberal, which I do prefer, but there are problems with that term as well, uh, mainly to do with the fact that it implies that what you're dealing with is some kind of old doctrine or way of thinking about the world that's being preserved in aspic, uh, whatever aspic is, uh, and which has not really evolved or changed much in the last 100 years or so. In fact, that's not true. What you're talking about here is a very active and live intellectual tradition which is still developing, in fact, 
in all kinds of interesting ways right now. Uh, I think really we ought to go back uh, to the original term that was applied to this way of thinking about the world when it first came to be formulated, uh, which is individualism. Uh, and I think that that term has all kinds of advantages. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, it's not been used really in that way since the early 1950s for complicated reasons. Uh, so we have to talk about libertarianism. So what is it? Well, the first thing to grasp about libertarianism is that, like most of the major political philosophies of our time, it's a modern doctrine. You will not find people advocating libertarian ideals really in a systematic way before, at the very earliest, the very late 18th or the early 19th century. Like modern conservatism and socialism, it's one of those ideas, ways of thinking about the world and about politics, that springs out of the Enlightenment. So we're talking here about a post-Enlightenment philosophy. There are people in earlier periods, including several not in Europe, by the way, notably a number of thinkers in late Ming China, who advocate something very similar to uh, contemporary libertarianism, uh, the uh, school of Confucian thought that follows Wang Yangming in uh, early 17th century China has a number of thinkers who are very close to this position. But uh, when you put them into their historical context and understand where they're coming from, the Confucian tradition, uh, it's really a bit anachronistic to say that they are libertarians in the way that a modern thinker would be. So we're dealing with a modern philosophy. That's the first thing to realize here. What we're dealing with here is a political position which essentially is an answer to the question, how should the modern world be organized? And how should the modern world uh, see itself and how should it run its affairs? The second thing to realize, and this is the crucial point, is that libertarianism is a political philosophy. It is not anything more than that. Essentially, it's a doctrine, an argument about how politics, uh, public affairs, should be organized, about the nature of law, the nature of political power, the nature of government, the nature of governance, if you will. It is not a comprehensive or total philosophy. In other words, libertarians, what they agree about, what makes them a coherent body of people, however much they may disagree on the nuances, is a common or shared view about the nature of politics uh, and the limitations of politics. They do not share views about the whole range of other kind of questions that philosophy is concerned with. They do not share views, for example, about what the good, the beautiful and the true are. Uh, they do not share ideas about the way that you ought to live uh, or what a good life consists of. So unlike, say, Roman Catholicism, uh, it's not a comprehensive philosophy of life uh, which seeks to answer questions about a whole range of aspects of human life, such as what the point or purpose of life is. In fact, a central feature of the libertarian position is that it deliberately avoids giving answers to those kind of questions, particularly the one I just alluded to, the one about if you like, what the point of life is, because a central part of the argument is that each person has to decide for themselves what the point of their life should be. There is no kind of uh, position about what it should be, unlike, as I say, for example, in most religious philosophies. So that's the first thing to grasp about what I'm going to be talking about here. We are not talking here about a kind of comprehensive philosophy that covers morals, ethics, aesthetics, and a whole range of other things. We're talking about a philosophy which is purely and simply about politics and the use and nature of power. The uh, second thing also to sort of grasp about this um, is that it does not have a single foundation. A lot of libertarians, I'm afraid, the sectarian ones, uh, will give you the impression that libertarian conclusions about politics derive from and are founded upon a particular basis of some kind or other. And the common argument that's made by people like this afterwards is that if you don't share that basis, 
then you're not a true libertarian. So there's a kind of sectarian quality to this. Now, what are some of the bases that have been advocated? Well, for some people, it's a kind of Lockean doctrine of natural rights. You find this also in Robert Nozick, for example. Locke, Nozick, a lot of American libertarians draw their conclusions about politics from a presumption about the existence of natural rights defined in a certain way. So the opening sentence of Anarchy, State and Utopia, Nozick's famous book, of course, is all human beings have rights, uh, basically. That's his initial premise, which he does not bother to defend or articulate in other ways. Other people, on the other hand, such as uh, David Friedman, and before him his father, Milton Friedman, uh, base their libertarian conclusions on utilitarianism, usually of the John Stuart Mill variety. Uh, so there's a whole kind of body of libertarians who say that essentially libertarianism is the way to maximize human well-being, the greatest happiness of the greatest number. There are yet others who derive it from virtue ethics, essentially from uh, a form of argument about what is necessary to lead the good life. And this is a kind of Aristotelian basis for libertarianism. Uh, there are others who have even other foundations. My own favorite group, who have now died out, were the Gallimbosians, um, whose arguments about libertarianism came from a truly bizarre view about intellectual property. Uh, this was the belief that intellectual property was the same as any other kind of property, which meant, amongst other things, uh, that you could not talk about, for example, the American Declaration of Independence uh, unless you first paid royalties to the estate of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and I do remember the bizarre experience of being at libertarian gatherings in the 70s or early 80s, where young, earnest Americans usually would come up to you and say, I have this theory which explains how the whole world works, and if we put it into effect, it will create a perfect world, war, poverty will all vanish, and everyone will live a life of perfect happiness. You'd say, this sounds good, what is it? And they'd say, oh, I can't tell you, um, <laughs> because they hadn't paid the royalties to uh, Andrew Gallenbos. Um, so that was another rather bizarre and eccentric uh, form of uh, libertarianism. Uh, I did actually eventually read Gallenbos's book, um, and it, made me, it convinced me completely that intellectual property is an incoherent idea and a load of bollocks, basically, uh, because the argument was logically impeccable and utterly rigorous, but the conclusions were barking mad, basically. Uh, so it was a classic reductio ad absurdum. I concluded that if the argument led logically to such completely nonsensical conclusions, then the premise must be uh, wrong, basically. But my point is, though, which I, uh, that, to go to the main point here, that... You, cannot, you should not think of libertarianism as being something that is necessarily tied up with a particular foundational starting point. It's not simply and only uh, an outgrowth of utilitarianism or an outgrowth of natural rights theory or an outgrowth of anything else. It may in individual cases derive from all of those things, although I actually think in more often, more often what's happened is that people have arrived at libertarian conclusions or analyses, and then they've worked backwards to try and find a philosophical foundation. Uh, but the, I think this foundationalism actually is a bit of a waste of intellectual time, but that's another matter. Uh, but the point is that you don't need to think that it has that. So that's a very important thing. So what is it then? Uh, if it's not something that has a particular foundation, you can't think of it in foundationalist terms. And if it's not something that is a comprehensive uh, or total philosophy of the world, it's a political philosophy, what is it? Well, very simply, the core premise, if you will, is the argument or assertion that the role of power and force in human life, and in particular in public life, should be kept to a minimum. Uh, in other words, it's the argument that voluntary relations between human beings, relations based upon consent, should be the norm and the default position. 
and that you should seek uh, at almost any cost, really, to minimise involuntary coercion-based, power-based relations between human beings. Now, this obviously raises all sorts of interesting and difficult issues, like the degree to which circumstances can be held to be coercive. Uh, does the concept of coercion and force and power necessarily imply conscious will and intention, for example? Or can we say that circumstances such as poverty are in some sense coercive? That's, that's one of the big issues that this whole position throws up. Um, it also raises the interesting question of um, how far uh, relations, for example, within the family or within private institutions such as uh, firms or uh, companies of one kind or another can also uh, come under the rubric of power relations and be seen as being coercive in the same way as political relations. And this is, an, this is one of the current big issues amongst libertarian thinkers, actually. There's quite an argument going on about that very particular issue, particularly in the United States. So I'll return to that point later on. But that's the crucial sort of basic uh, argument. Now, this has, I would say, three major corollaries, which, if you like, form essentially to simplify enormously the basic part of libertarian political thinking. The starting point, therefore, as I say, is that you want to minimise the role of force and power in human affairs. First corollary of that is that, therefore, government, which is almost by definition force-based relations, should be minimal. Uh, government, the state, is classically defined by Weber as being the institution that has a monopoly on the legitimate use of force in a specified territory. Uh, so the use of force is of the essence of government as a human institution and of governance as a human activity. So if your position and political philosophy is that you should minimize the role of coercion, uh, then uh, you are going to want to minimize the role of government. And I put it that way rather than the state, because I think that it's an, you know, um, the state in some ways is a kind of historically contingent phenomenon. We have had government ever since at least the advent of agriculture in most parts of the world. Uh, the state with a capital S is something that really only appears in the, uh, at the very earliest, the 17th century, I would argue, uh, in various ways, both intellectually and in practical terms. So first of all, then, we're talking about minimal government. The second thing which follows on from this is that the power that government has, or that, to be more precise and exact, the people who constitute the government have, is delegated. Uh, in other words, you do not have, uh, libertarianism explicitly rejects the idea that the people who exercise power over others for whatever reason gain that power from some source other than that of the delegation and consent of the people over whom the power is exercised. Uh, so the argument is that the source of the power of uh, government is essentially that of agency. They are people like presidents, prime ministers, uh, other government officials and the like, are essentially exercising a power which we have handed over them to exercise on our behalf. Now, you can then get into lots of secondary arguments about how this is done. Is it done purely on the basis of individuals delegating their authority, which is Locke's position, for example, uh, or do we have some entity called we the people uh, who hand over the uh, power, which is what the United States Constitution uh, presumes? That then leads to lots of arguments about how you define what the people is, and very interesting arguments, obviously, um, historically. But the ultimate point that the power is delegated uh, remains. Now, um, very conveniently, um, we've just had a classic example of the opposite view here. Uh, you, may, you must have noticed, although I, to my shame, didn't notice until very late yesterday, that uh, the Pope has handed his notice in. 
um, which I must say is very strange. I always thought it was a job for life, actually. I thought that was the whole idea, uh, but apparently not. Um, and uh, I, I was wondering you know, all day yesterday, why is all these people on Twitter saying they're going to run for Pope? And then somebody told me, haven't you heard? You know, uh, And all the news bulletins said that he'd resigned, which irritated me intensely, because uh, being a stickler for accuracy in words, the correct term, of course, is that he's abdicated. Now, what is the difference, and why does that annoy me, and why is it relevant to what I'm saying about delegated power? Well, if you, if you resign, then what that means is that you hold a role in which you are given delegated power by somebody who is over you in some sense. And when you resign, you hand back the power that's been delegated to you. You resign your office. Now, who is the Pope responsible to? Well, God, actually. Uh, and so you can't resign because the power he has, uh, the powers of deciding doctrine and all the other powers that the Pope exercises in the Catholic Church, they don't come from any earthly source. They come from outside human society, from God. So therefore, uh, you can only abdicate. The same is true, of course, of kings. That's why kings abdicate. Because, again, the power they have does not come from their subjects. It comes from outside the human sphere, from God. And so the only thing you can do is step down to abdicate. So the words actually reveal a difference. And that shows you the two different ideas of how political power uh, arises. Today, very few people are robust enough uh, to think that, uh, in their thinking, to argue the case for uh, divine right or some other mystical notion of where power comes from. We all tend to believe in some notion of popular sovereignty, but most people don't think through what that actually means because of a lot of mystification, I think. So that's the, first, that's the second point then. So the first point is that the, the role of government is minimal. You want to reduce government to the smallest extent possible, and some libertarians go all the way and say that therefore you should be an anarchist and not have any government. Uh, some libertarians, I think the majority, actually think just that you need a minimal government. They say that there is some necessary role for coercion in human affairs, but it should be as small as possible. Uh, and secondly, the power to exercise that coercive power is one that is ultimately delegated. It does not come from outside the voluntary consent of the people over whom it is exercised. The final, so the third major corollary that flows from the initial premise is that, and this is a very important one, is that governments, people with power, should not distinguish between different notions of the good life. Uh, in other words, it is not the role of government and political power to promote one way of living, uh, one kind of life over others. Uh, you have to realize what a radical statement that is historically. Uh, generally speaking, most political philosophers thought until the late 18th century that perhaps the central role of government and political power was precisely to promote the good. Uh, the problem, of course, was that there was lots of disagreement about what the good was. Uh, and this led to lots of unpleasantness like civil war and religious persecution. But the fact that government was there to make people obey the commands of virtue, to live in a certain way, and to try to realize a particular idea of what the good life was, that was not in dispute. Most people thought it was self-evident that that was what the job of people with political power was. Now, by contrast, libertarians argue that the government should not make distinctions between different ways of living, that it should leave people to choose what their way of living is on a number of bases, one of them being that most people are, generally speaking, the best judge of their own interests. This was Mill's famous argument, for example. Now, you may think this is a, an OTO's argument, because who does think that these days? Well, lots of people. Uh, so, you know, governments these days apparently seem to think the political class increasingly seem to think uh, that it's part of their responsibility to influence by various means the kind of diet that we have uh, or whether or not we take enough exercise. 
uh, or other features of our personal life, there are very strong notions held that there's a certain way of living that's the right way to live and that the government should be using various powers, the tax power, other powers, in order to try and at least nudge us uh, or even outrightly coerce us into living in a certain way to realise a certain life. Some people are more honest and consistent about this. Peter Hitchens, uh, I don't even know who he is, a columnist of the Daily Mail. I do like Peter, actually, although he's barking mad in my view. Um, Peter is very explicit about this. He, the reason why he thinks that um, there should be a war on drugs, and he thinks that we've not been fighting one yet, which is news to all those people who are in prison at the moment, but there you go. Um, Peter thinks that the reason why we should have a war on drugs is because taking drugs is immoral, and taking drugs is a bad way of living. I could actually agree with that. I probably do, actually. Uh, but he then goes on to argue that one of the central roles of government is to stop people leading a self-destructive and bad way of life and get them to lead a good way of life. And that's the point, that the, the argument that libertarians fundamentally and basically reject. Uh, so that's, a third, that's the third key element. So those are the three kind of key elements of libertarian thinking, if you will. Minimal government, uh, all political power is strictly limited and delegated, and government does not make distinctions between one version of the good life and others. It allows for free choice about this. And it also means, of course, allowing people to do things which are self-destructive. So, you know, if you're like George Best and you reckon that, uh, you know, spending all your money on, on drink and women is useful and the rest of it is just wasted, uh, then, you know, you let people go ahead and do this. Uh, and, you know, you may regret the choices they've made, uh, but they've not done it. Uh, and I remember when Amy Winehouse uh, died recently, there was lots of stuff in the press about how she was a victim. And I personally thought that was highly offensive, actually, not least to her, because she'd chosen to live the way she had. The rest of us might think it was self-destructive and not very good for a woman of her talents. But, you know, that was what she wanted to do. That was the course of life she chose. And to say that she was a victim, which implied that you know, she'd not chosen this somehow, I thought was, was offensive as well as inaccurate. So... Um, what, does, uh, what then follows on from this? Well, I'm sure some of you begin to thinking, think about something. And that is, um, what about economics? Because surely when most people think of libertarianism, uh, they think it means free market economics. Well, yes, but not in the straightforward way that people think. What libertarianism means is that you can't have certain kinds of political economy. You can't have a political economy which gives a major role to the state. So you can't have a planned economy or, for that matter, the kind of social democratic public economy, which is the dominant form in most developed countries today. A, you can't have, for example, a political economy in which the state decides how 50% of the national income is spent, which is what we have here in the UK, because that certainly isn't minimal government, and it's certainly not minimising the role of power in public affairs. On the other hand, it doesn't follow from this that therefore you support capitalism. It certainly doesn't follow that you should support the status quo economically. Uh, and you know, if given the extent and power of government in the modern world, which libertarians deplore, uh, a large part of contemporary capitalism is also something that they would deplore because it consists essentially of people using political power for their own private advantage, uh, which in some ways is even worse than using it for some that supposed public good, although the effects are often the same. So some libertarians do support what you can broadly define as capitalism, but not all of them. There are also what you might call left libertarians who support some other kind of economy. 
John Stuart Mill, for example, who's undoubtedly one of the great libertarians in my view, uh, was someone who, towards the end of his life, certainly thought that we should have an economy, a laissez-faire economy with a minimal government, but in which there was no wage labour and no rent. So he favoured an economy essentially consisting of uh, worker cooperatives. His argument was that uh, labour should hire capital rather than the other way round. That was the way he put it in his autobiography and elsewhere. Similarly, there are mutualists, for instance, uh, who follow the kind of argument made by Proudhon. Uh, you no doubt know that Proudhon famously said, property is theft. What you may not know is in the same book, Proudhon later on said, property is freedom. And then he finally ended up by saying, property is impossible. So a typical Frenchman. Uh, you know, contradictory. Uh, but in fact, if you actually read the book, which almost nobody has done, I'm afraid, um, the, what you realise is that Proudhon was distinguishing between two different kinds of property, one which he thought was legitimate and one which he thought was not, and he liked the legitimate form. Uh, and so the, but the point is that there are libertarians who basically follow the kind of political economy that Proudhon and his followers advocated, so-called mutualism, uh, which is, again, a free market economy, certainly, but not a capitalist one. So if you want to talk about the economics that follows on from these positions, what it implies is certainly a free market economy. It implies an economy in which you have free exchange, in which people are free to exchange goods, make contracts with each other uh, on as free and unrestricted a basis as possible. Uh, the only kind of, um, you know, there are certain limitations on the kind of contracts you can enter into for most libertarians anyway, uh, but these are very, very minimal. But it does not follow from that that you necessarily have or end up with an economy or a political economy that is like the one we have now, or even a kind of more purified capitalist economy. It's perfectly consistent with libertarian principles to advocate a different kind of political economy, and many people do. So that's, that's one of the obvious um, uh, things there. Uh, there's a number of other things that follow on from this. Uh, one of them, of course, is that there's support for free trade, one of the kind of quintessential uh, libertarian political and economic positions. Uh, free trade is a much more radical idea than most people realize, uh, because essentially the argument is that economic relations should pay no attention to national borders, to geopolitical frontiers. The essential insight or argument is that a trade or exchange relationship between somebody living in Durham and somebody living in Somerset is no different from a trade relation between somebody in Durham and somebody in China or somebody in Japan. The fact that one of them crosses a geopolitical border and the other doesn't is completely irrelevant to this way of thinking. Because to make it relevant is to apply political power in an area where it's not appropriate. Uh, and this basically undercuts an enormous amount uh, of actual real-world existing uh, regulation and government control. It's also worth saying it dissolves a lot of national borders. That's why another one of the uh, corollaries of this position, economic corollaries and social corollaries of this position, is that you should have open borders. Uh, and that you should not have any of this damn nonsense we have to put up with these days. Uh, when you just happen to go across a geopolitical border, you have to produce an ident form of identification and put up with being asked all sorts of questions by somebody who's obviously been bred on a special farm. Um, I came to the conclusion that certainly in the United States, they must have a special farm in North Dakota where they produce all their you know, border security people. Uh, and that part of the procedure is to have a sense of humor removal procedure. Uh, but this, this is generally the, the case every, everywhere, actually. Uh, since you've got Martin here from you know, the Antipodes, I should mention that one of the worst examples of this is this show we have on British television about Australian border guards uh, and about how they protect Australia from the dreadful thing of people who want to come into Australia from outside and work there uh, or bring in cooked Indonesian food and this kind of thing. 
Um, and the, one of the most striking things about that is the utter, total lack of any sense of humour or proportion on the part of these people. Uh, and what we often realize, don't realise is how recent all this is. Uh, in 1914, for example, there were only two countries in Europe that required you to have a passport for entry. Uh, and those were the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire. And everyone else thought that showed how backward those two countries were. Uh, and the requirement to have a passport was one of the many bad things that came in with World War I. Uh, and nowadays people just think it's perfectly normal and natural that you should have to put up with all kinds of impertinent and personal questions when you want to make a journey around the world. Uh, so, I mean, that's another uh, part of the... Uh, consequences, if you will, for economic and other policies of the kind of doctrines I'm mentioning. Uh, and there, of course, there are many others, some of which are generally taken for granted these days, or we shouldn't take them for granted, others of which are still very controversial. So it implies, for example, that you should have complete religious toleration, uh, which we think is an obvious or straightforward doctrine, but which most of our ancestors thought was monstrously wicked. Uh, you know, the, the, the general view of most well-thinking well people in Europe, certainly, until really the middle of the 19th century, was that religious toleration was a monstrously evil doctrine. Uh, when you think about their premises, this makes perfect sense. Because if you believe that if you have the wrong religious beliefs, you're going to go and burn in hell forever, which means you're going to suffer pain worse than the human mind can imagine for eternity, then to allow people to spread bad religious ideas which will lead people to suffer this fate is an incredibly bad thing to do. Uh, and so it makes perfect sense to persecute heretics and not allow religious freedom uh, on that basis. So religious toleration is one of them. Uh, another of them is what you might call freedom of lifestyle, uh, which John Stuart Mill, of course, famously advocates in his great essay on liberty. Uh, this means, amongst other things, for example, the state should not be involved in marriage, uh, which is uh, you know, a completely orthogonal position to the current debate we're having as to whether or not to extend the right of state marriage to uh, different categories such as gay, gay men and women, uh, the sort of libertarian position would be that this is not an area where you, political power should be involved, uh, which means that you should simply have private contracts and agreements. So if people want to privately contract to have uh, you know, a marriage, which, oh, no, a multiple marriage, or one of the fancy kinds of marriages that Robert Heinlein talks about in some of his science fiction, then that's entirely up to them, as long as the laws of the, the consent and the laws of contract uh, are enforced. Uh, so again, another example is it means that uh, the catastrophic war on drugs and other forms of prohibition uh, are simply ruled out of court uh, for both utilitarian and other reasons. That doesn't mean necessarily that you don't think, as I said earlier, uh, that uh, certain lifestyles or lifestyle choices are not self-destructive and disastrous uh, for the people who make them. It just means that if you do think that, you are not able to use political power to try and realise your end of getting people to do less of it. You have to find some other way of doing it. Uh, and historically, I think actually there have been other ways of doing it which have proved to be more effective. Uh, so that's what, all, that, that, that's what I would say libertarianism is, essentially. It's a political doctrine, as I said at the start, uh, which has those three main elements. Minimal government, because that minimises the role of force most dramatically. Um, delegate, the fact that all power, as far as it does exist, should be delegated rather than uh, sourced from some outside source, uh, and that uh, government should not distinguish between different kinds of the good life. As I say, in terms of political economy, this means that certainly you have to have a voluntary free market economy, but what kind of free market economy you have is up for grabs, really. There are all kinds of arguments you can have that. Now, a couple of things finally to conclude. One of them is um, 
I alluded to debates that are going on. What are the big arguments that are going on at the moment within libertarianism? Uh, why do I say that this is a living philosophy and not simply a preserved old one? Well, the big argument at the moment, essentially, uh, is over precisely this question of what is the most appropriate political economy for um, libertarians to support. Uh, and in particular, it centers around the question of how to evaluate and how to judge private power uh, as compared to public power. Two kinds of arguments which I think are very interesting are being made at the moment. I'll just flag them up to you. Uh, the first is uh, an extension of Hayek's critique of government to other institutions. Uh, Friedrich Hayek, who's probably, I think, the most important uh, libertarian thinker of the last uh, 100 years, certainly, uh, basically produced a critique of government based upon his idea of what, was, what he called the knowledge problem. The fact that uh, the knowledge that human beings have in a large complex society such as ours is enormously large but incredibly scattered and diffuse. Uh, it's broken up and shared. Each, each one of us has a tiny minuscule fragment of the total body of knowledge. Not only that, but much of the knowledge that we have is incapable of being articulated or written down, uh, which means that you can't capture it, even if you were to go around everybody and ask them to tell you what it was. Uh, and the result is that, therefore, large government planning or large-scale attempts to manipulate uh, public affairs through public policy are doomed to be counterproductive and to fail, Hayek thinks, because they can't get around the knowledge problem. Now, one of the things that's beginning to be pointed out is that Hayek's argument is a critique not just of government, but of large hierarchical institutions in general. So it's a critique which applies as much to really large firms, for example, as it does to government. It's just that from a Hayekian perspective, the problems in large firms are less acute because they're smaller than government. And also, there's a corrective mechanism to some degree uh, in the case of firms because they're embedded in a market economy which provides the check of profit and loss to the extent that that's allowed to operate. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there aren't serious problems. And I think uh, you, you can see how this was working in a number of uh, large institutions recently, such as large banks, for example, where one of the things that becomes obvious if you actually read accounts of what's going on in the City of London and Wall Street and elsewhere was that the senior executives in large banks just had no idea what the hell was going on. Uh, and that's really a classic example of the knowledge problem and how it works out in a large organization. The other is the question I alluded to earlier, which is that of how relations within, say, a firm uh, might constitute power relations. Um, there's a group of people over in the United States whom I'm sympathetic to called Bleeding Hearts Libertarians. They have a well-known blog by that name. Uh, one of the leading figures in it is a friend of mine called Jacob Levy. Uh, Jacob recently published a large post on this, and he invited comment from a number of people, including a woman called Elizabeth Anderson, who is a very well-known philosopher. Uh, she, she wrote a book, uh, I think in terms of the rigor of its argument, uh, a very good book about the role and scope of market relations and whether or not we should limit them. Uh, and she thinks that we should limit them, basically. She thinks there are a number of kind of transactions and relations that we should not turn into market relations. The kind of view that Michael Sandel has been putting, but unlike Sandel, she's a good philosopher. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I, I, can't, I can't work out quite why, why um, you know, he gets all the kudos and uh, Elizabeth Anderson and Deborah Satz, who have both made the same argument much more effectively and higher quality, don't get the credit anyway. But anyway, she commented on this and she made two comments, one of which I thought was basically just silly. The other, which was very quite profound and penetrating, I thought. The first one was she said, well, you've got to have all these regulations to stop private actors exploiting their customers and so on, which I think just shows elementary ignorance of economics. But the other comment was that there are all kinds of power relations in private institutions which constrain real human agency 
and that you can't simply say these are consensual in the way that uh, a lot of libertarians try to. And I think that point was very well taken. And that's where a lot of the argument is now, is now going on. So right now there are big arguments going on precisely about uh, what exactly the nature of power is and how to tweak out power relations in other circumstances. Another argument that's going on, just to again flag it up to you, is over what the nature of the modern state is uh, and why the modern state has the qualities it does and appeared when it did and whether or not there's any way of getting out of it. Um, this draws largely on the work of a fellow called Jim Scott, James C. Scott, who uh, is a political scientist, not a libertarian, but has written a couple of very interesting books about this topic, particularly his most recent one, Living Without the State, which I recommend to you very strongly. Great book, I think. Finally, what about the history of all this? Well, one thing I should also finally conclude and wrap up by saying uh, is that there's a common notion that libertarianism, whatever you want to call it, classical liberalism, individualism, uh, is not only a modern phenomenon, but an Anglo-Saxon one. There's a notion that it's something you find basically in the United Kingdom, in uh, the United States, maybe the British Commonwealth, uh, even in Canada, uh, but that it's not something that is part of the intellectual tradition of other parts of the world. This is completely false. Um, in fact, actually, if you were in the 19th century, the country where this philosophy was most highly developed was actually, of all places, France, uh, which is now the country which is the most hostile to it. But at that time, it was definitely very much a French idea. The really radical 19th century thinkers in this tradition, and many of the most interesting ones, uh, all come from France between about 1810, roughly, uh, and the 1880s or 1890s. Uh, similarly, there's a long German tradition in this. Uh, one of the great historical tragedies is that the German tradition of libertarianism and liberalism was crushed by Bismarck uh, in the aftermath of his great victory over the Austrians at Sadala in 1866. Uh, there's also been exponents to this view in pretty much every country you care to think of, even in apparently inhospitable places such as uh, Russia uh, and the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century during the Tanzimat period, for example. Uh, in India, uh, where there was a leading classical liberal libertarian party, for example, the main opposition to the Congress Party for some time during the 1960s, the so-called Swatantra Party, which uh, uh, finally dissolved itself but hasn't actually come to influence its former uh, adversaries in the Congress Party. Uh, and there are historical traditions in all parts of the world which, if you like, can lead to the same conclusion. That's why one of the points I want to emphasize is that you shouldn't think of this as having a foundation. So this is not a Western doctrine. It's not a uh, doctrine that derives from a particular uh, historical context or a particular uh, intellectual tradition, or needs to, I should say. Uh, this is simply a way of thinking about how the modern world should be organized, and in particular how the politics of the modern world should be organized. Uh, and, you know, you may think that's quite a limited goal, but uh, it certainly gives you enough to think about. So hopefully I've given you some idea of what this thing is, uh, and I'll now throw the floor open to questions from you all. Yep. So I'm going to go to the point you made about... Um, so I'm going to go to the point you made about um, the fact that uh, libertarianism doesn't necessarily imply one particular form of economic arrangements, uh, although it does imply it as minimal level of coercion of one person by another. And doesn't that, doesn't your putative corollary uh, require that you have a particular definition of property? Because what is coercion will depend on what you deem to be property rights. If you if you think individuals are capable of owning property in the, say in the lock-in sense of how you mix their labour with it or something. 
And then, well, then to interfere with someone's property is to coerce him, and therefore that sort of tends to lead to, to capitalism. Like, Unless you think people can own things No, no, not at all. Um, even in Lockean um, definitions of property, uh, it doesn't follow that you have capitalism. Um, you, you might argue that the more logical kind of conclusion from Lockean theories of property would be a society of self-employed people and smallholders. Uh, and that, in fact, was a conclusion that lots of Lockean radicals did come to, historically. Uh, now, the question also there is, well, what what are property rights? Because the question of minimizing coercion, the question of what property is, are not the same thing. Now, now why do you ha have, well, okay, let me go back. I, right at the start, I said that um, libertarianism is not two other things. It's not free market conservatism, because conservatism uh, does share the idea that there are certain things which bind individuals which come from outside their own choices and should do, and that one of the roles of government is to, in fact, uh, you know, enforce those things. That's why Peter Hitchens, for example, is definitely not a libertarian and would, you know, hates, hates, hates the libertarian position, basically. But it all, I also said that um, libertarianism is not the same thing as uh, libertarian socialism. Now, so I'd say the Peter Kropotkin variety uh, or, you know, the classic anarchist communist position. Why is that? Well, that relates to the question of what property is and what function it serves. Now, the argument essentially is that property uh, serves the vital social function of protecting individuals against coercion. But, but you then have a secondary question as to what that implies. Now, that does not necessarily imply capitalism. For many libertarians, it implies that you shouldn't have wage labor, which was a common position, for example, because it means that uh, the, the argument which a lot of 19th century libertarians made, uh, including Mill, but also lots of other ones, like people who have now forgotten, like Wordsworth, Donisthorpe, but also Herbert Spencer, is that ultimately wage labour is freer, obviously, than indentured labour, which in turn is freer than slave labour, but it's not real free labour, because you've surrendered a part of the property that you have in your own person to the employer in return for a payment. So the argument was that ultimately everyone should be either individually or collectively self-employed. So in that case, the argument about property leads to a conclusion for a different kind of free market economy from a capitalist one. Now, of course, obviously, not everyone accepts that. So, can I just respond yeah. to this point? So, you, would you consider it coercion? Can I just respond yeah. to this point? So, you, would you consider it coercion if I stole your suit and your like, belongings? Yes, I would. Yeah, I would consider that coercion too. And that's predicated on the idea that you're capable of owning suits yeah. and property and things. So I'm saying that you're, what you deem to be coercion... Suppose that I don't own the suit. I, uh, I am maybe... I have some other kind of quasi-property claim release. Or maybe it's not even my suit. The coercion involves in the fact that it's a non-consensual act. It's not... You know, in other words, you're taking the clothes away from me without my you know, consenting to that in some way. Uh, it's not the, the fact that I own them is not really relevant to that. Even if I didn't own them, it would still be a coercive act because you, you haven't got my consent. So, so maybe I phrase my question poorly. What I, what I really meant to ask was, doesn't... Maybe I phrase my question poorly. What I, what I really meant to ask was, doesn't your saying libertarian implies a minimum amount of coercion really not imply anything about what we ought to do unless you have, unless you specify what, what constitutes coercion, i.e. what constitutes people's property rights. Their property My point, you're saying that you can't define coercion without the concept of property. I'm saying that the two things are independent. You can define coercion even in a world in which there is no property. Yeah, but you, 
can't take your suit from you unless you own it. Otherwise, no, of course you can't. Of course you. No, it's not a matter of ownership. Um, let's let's say there is something which is. Let's say we're living in a world in which. Um, and have you ever read The Dispossessed? No. Okay, great book. It's a science fiction novel uh, by Ursula Le Guin um, about a world which is basically a Kropotkinian um, anarchist society. So it's no private property. You can't say my hanky. You can only say the hanky I use, right? But you can still have coercion. In that case, you would have the suit I use. And if you take the suit I use away from me and stop me using it without my agreeing to you doing that, that's coercion. There's no property involved. It's to do, you can have coercion. In, in, because that would imply your conclusion that if you had um, a, a, a society which has no property, then you might not be able to have, be able to define what coercion was, which is you know, deeply counterintuitive. Yeah, I mean, you would probably be able to define it in respect of your individual person, not in respect of objects. You would probably be able to define it in respect of your individual person, not in respect of objects out in the world reject the Lockean notion of property. I think it's incoherent in all sorts of ways. It doesn't make sense, ultimately, I think, unless you believe, as Locke did, in God. And not only just any old God, but a very particular kind of God. Uh, a God who has our best interests at heart, for example, which is a very strange assumption. Um, the, uh, you know, I, I personally think that you know, if there is a God, it's much more likely that he's incompetent or malevolent. So I prefer to think that there isn't one. Just put my own cards yeah, on the table there. Yeah, I mean the, the I think the the view I take is is the David Hume view, which is that property is an emergent social institution, which appears in order to minimise conflict. And and what the point about the Hume view, which I think is much more robust and is supported by the empirical evidence, is that property need not exist. You can have lots of situations where you do not have property, uh, and property arises typically when the pressure of population or natural resources or other resources becomes, you know, goes beyond a certain point. And at that point you need it because, Hume says, of two factors, the scarcity of resources and the limitations of human benevolence, uh, which mean that if you don't have property, you're going to have people killing each other, basically. Uh, so in that sense, there is a connection with coercion because what it wants to do is to stop violence. Uh, but it doesn't follow that the two things are inextricably interconnected. You can have coercion even, say, way where the property rights aren't specified, is what I would say. Other, other questions? Yep. Um, you said the government and the state were different things, but wasn't the Roman Empire a state? Not. Um, you said the government and the state were different things, but wasn't the Roman Empire a state? Government is something, like I say, that has existed since old Sumer or the old kingdom in Egypt. And government essentially means that certain people in society have certain kinds of power over other people. Above all, the power to tax. Uh, and also, historically, the power to kill people, which is why... You know, some people who love the state say that the executioner is the key state official. Um, but those are the two crucial ones. Uh, and also the power to demand your labor, to build the pyramids or whatever it is. So that's something which is constant throughout history. What is different about modern government, which we call the state, uh, is the way in which this power is now theoretically and in other ways separated from actual individuals. If you went to ancient Egypt, where the state was all powerful, or the Roman Empire, who was the state? The state was basically the emperor, the res publica, as the Romans thought of it, was the, the emperor himself and the other officials who got power from him. Before that, in the Republic, it had been the Senate and the consuls and other people like that. It was concrete, actual people. The modern way of thinking about politics, which to some degree is actually reflected in practice, is that the state is a kind of abstract entity 
which exists independent of the actual people who exercise power. Uh, and what we do now is to think, oh, that's what the Roman Republic or the Roman Empire was like. But in fact, I don't think it was. I think that kind of uh, political apparatus and way of thinking about politics doesn't really appear until the 17th century uh, with Thomas Hobbes, uh, John Locke, uh, Jean Baudin is the man who really invents it, great French political thinker of the 1590s. And it doesn't really come into being until, I think, until the late, very late 18th century when the enlightened despots and then other regimes, Napoleon's in particular, and also British regimes, create the modern state as we now know it. Uh, and the interesting question is, you know, can we get out from under it now that we've done this? Because it's a different kind of politics, it seems to me. Other, other questions? Yeah, John. And I think it's actually a particularly malevolent form in some ways, uh, partly because of what I think is the worst intellectual discovery or invention ever, which is the modern doctrine of nationalism. Um, because what nationalism does is make people identify their own personal identity with that of the, the political power they live under. Yeah. That's why you get big wars, yes, because uh, in, in the 18th century, basically wars were something kings did, and the ordinary peasant or townsfolk just thought there was a complete pain in the backside. Uh, and they certainly weren't going to rush out into the streets and celebrate and all volunteer to join the military the way people did in the summer of 1914. Also, they don't, they're not prepared to pay taxes. Louis XIV, the man who famously said, you know, I am the state, uh, which expresses the older view, by the way, uh, he never managed to get more than 10% of the national income. And if he had tried to collect more than 10% of the national income, there would have been dead tax collectors hanging from pretty much every tree in France. He had enough trouble with the amount he did try to collect. These days, we give up 50% of our income to the government. And we're prepared to do this because we think of it as being an expression of us in some way. Um, Mills, John Stuart Mill said in one of the letters he wrote towards the end of his life that that had been the big change in his lifetime. He said, when I was young, we all thought of government as being this thing outside and over us, which we had some kind of relationship with, it might be adversarial, it might be clientage, it might be something else, but it was definitely not part of us. Now, he said, we think of it as being an expression of us in some way, and he thought this was a striking change. He didn't welcome it. I mean, like I say, he wrote this about a year before he died, and he thought this was a very bad development, but he, he clearly identified it. Yep? Some people would argue that we need certain welfare institutions to actually preserve individual freedom. Mm -hmm. Some people would argue that we need certain welfare institutions to actually preserve individual freedom. And what would be the libertarian position on this? Well, in order to have effective agency, you need to have certain welfare institutions, otherwise people are too much subject to random fate, if you will, and circumstance to have real agency of some kind. I actually think that's quite a powerful argument. You can grant that. The question that then rises is, well, okay, does that therefore mean that government and political power is what is needed to create a welfare state? And I would say the libertarian position is no, you don't. So libertarians would maybe accept the position that there needs to be some kind of mechanism to uh, ensure agency for or a minimum level of agency for everybody in society, but reject the idea that the way to do this is by expanding the role of government, because that has the paradoxical effect of diminishing the agency of people in general. I mean, there is an argument which some people have made that um, you, if you take a little bit of agency away from a lot of people, but give a lot of it, new agency to a small number of people, then overall balance is that agency is, is increased. But I think that, that you can argue that may well be true, say, 
at some point 100 years ago, but it's certainly not true now, uh, given the kind of size of the welfare state that we now have. And it, you can argue that it's probably not even true originally. So what is the alternative? Well, the alternative is one of the forgotten aspects of um, libertarian or classical liberal thinking, which is uh, voluntarism and mutual aid. People often think that the alternative to the welfare state is charity. But in fact, historically, most libertarians were opposed to charity uh, on the grounds that it was essentially another form of power relationship because it involved condescension on the part of the donor to the recipient. Um, and interestingly, by the way, this is like apropos that, one of the most interesting things that classical liberals did in the 19th century in this country was to change the understood meaning of the word condescension because in the 18th and early 19th century, condescension was a good thing. So if you read um, Pride and Prejudice, uh, Mr. Collins, who of course is a fearful suck-up, um, uh, says about Lady Catherine de Burr that she's got the most gracious condescension. Uh, and, what he, and to condescend means to come down with somebody. So it's somebody who's up there who you know, comes down to share your position. And that was thought to be a good thing. And what the classical liberals did was to say, no, this was a bad thing because it violated human dignity, basically. So you don't actually want uh, charity to some degree because it has the same problems as state welfare. Another way of thinking about state welfare is that it's just charity. That's what it is, basically. So the alternative is mutual aid, where people with limited means pool their resources uh, and, by doing so, provide protection against contingencies. So what that means in practical terms is things like the Great Friendly Societies, the Odd Fellows, which I belong to, um, Freemasons, Rechabites, foresters, shepherds, buffaloes, all these famous societies that used to exist and some of which still do exist. Uh, and throughout the 19th century, these were a major social phenomenon. Unfortunately, they've been destroyed by or squeezed out by the, both the welfare state and modern large business. Um, but that's the alternative, and that's how you attempt to provide agency to ordinary people, and the, that's a way of doing so on a voluntary basis. But it should be said that before we get there, you've got to clear out all the mess that government has already been but it should be said that before we get there, you've got to clear out all the mess that government has already imposed on us before we even know how much we need to support other people. Yeah. But also say on that point, if you're going to have open borders, then it's very difficult to have... Well, 1924, the United States has no border controls. Uh, you arrive at Ellis Island, if you're an immigrant, and they basically make sure you're not carrying a communicable disease, and they take your name and misspell it. Uh, which is why the United States is full of people with you know, misspelt names, phonetics, <laughs> phonetic spellings of European names, basically. Um, and then you just go off. There's no public relief. So what do you do if you are an immigrant from, say, Poland or Slovakia or Italy or wherever, uh, and you arrive in the United States? Well, what very rapidly happens is that societies are set up, friendly societies and organizations, purely for people of a particular ethnic origin, an immigrant origin. Uh, and so what you get, therefore, is free open borders and free migration of people, but you also get voluntary action which provides assistance for those people, uh, in, and particularly the obvious assistance they need in finding where to look for work, how the system, to explain how the system works. So if there was, for example, the, the ancient Slovakian Brothers Friendly Society, uh, which had, had, had halls all over the United States, and if you came from Slovakia uh, and you went to New York or Chicago or Boston, uh, you could go to the Slovak Hall and they would uh, find you somewhere to live, they would tell you where to go and get a job, they would give you temporary assistance and relief and that kind of thing. So that, that's how that, that contradiction, but there is a contradiction now. There's also a contradiction in the political philosophy about the way the welfare state now works. Um, the British public tends to think that the British welfare state is based upon contribution. 
the basic notion that most British people have is that you contribute through paying taxes and national insurance and that then at the end of your life in particular but at other points you get back what you've put in you have an entitlement you built up um, that's one of the reasons why there's strong political opposition to reducing benefits to the elderly but not so much opposition to reducing benefits to young people like most of you because the feeling is, well, you're young, you haven't yet paid in, therefore you don't, haven't built up the entitlement. Trouble is, that's not the philosophy on which the contemporary welfare state works in either Britain or the rest of the world. The contemporary welfare state, and by that I mean since the 1970s, works on the basis of universal human rights and needs. It's supposed to be needs-based, not contribution-based, uh, which the British public hasn't cottoned on to yet. Now, the problem with that, though, is that that's got all sorts of interesting questions, because if it's universal human rights that provide you with an entitlement to state income transfers and welfare benefits, surely this should apply to all human beings everywhere on the planet. Why does it suddenly stop working at a national border? So you know, if you say, OK, universal human rights give people entitlement to British welfare benefits, Mexicans are not entitled to British welfare benefits, therefore Mexicans are not human. Uh, that would be a logically correct you know, argument to make in that context. And of course, the, you know, uh, the more honest or you know, courageous uh, people on the pro-welfare states, I will say, well, yes, this is true. And ideally, what you do want is a global welfare state. I mean, there are some people like Poggy and others who think we should have a global welfare state you know, for that reason. Um, but that's the point at which many people sort of like refuse to follow their arguments through to their logical conclusions um, for various reasons. Yeah, Martin. Steve, just thinking about two different things that you said in your talk. One of them was about how libertarianism is explicitly uh, or narrowly a political philosophy mm. rather than a broader moral philosophy, for instance. And then you also talked about um, Sandel and Elizabeth Anderson. Mm. It seems to me that maybe they think they're doing politics, um, but they really should be doing moral philosophy. So to say that it's wrong to have a market transaction over organ, um, you know, sale of human yeah. organs or prostitution or something like that is not necessarily, you know, to say that that's wrong is not necessarily the same as to say it's right for the government to prevent it. Yes, indeed. And Elizabeth Anderson does say that. Uh, she, she's much more subtle in her arguments than Sandel. Um, she explicitly says that she's not making a political argument, that she's in fact making an argument of moral philosophy. Uh, it's an argument, the, the argument that she makes essentially is one about agency, and she thinks that human agency and the value of human beings is significantly impaired by making certain kinds of relationship uh, or activity market-driven, uh, subject to exchange. So she argues, for example, that things like friendship um, and a number of other kinds of human relationships and things like bodily integrity are not things that you should engage in trade relations for. Uh, and her argument essentially is that this is moral philosophy. And she says it has obvious implications for politics, but she's not in the business of political philosophy. She's very explicit about that. Uh, and she also does argue that it doesn't necessarily involve politics. She says it probably does involve politics now, but she's open to the argument that it could just rely upon social norms. She says the problem is we don't have the social norms. Uh, but as I say, she's a, she's a very good philosopher, unlike Sandel, who seems to think that philosophy consists of making assertions um, which are not supported by argument. Uh, so, you know, as you may gather, I'm not impressed. So, yes. Give us a very sort of philosophical um, basis, which were very good, and I've not really heard one. Give us a very sort of philosophical um, basis, which were very good, and I've not really heard one before on uh, libertarianism. Um, and you mentioned at the beginning that we're in a 
in a, a state that uh, is uh, quite anti-libertarian in terms of being able to manage, uh, wanting to manage our lifestyles, for example. Uh, and I wondered, uh, as a libertarian of, of some years standing, and feeling over the years more and more hopeless and helpless, what, what you might see is there are a lot of gloomy libertarians who say that, oh my God, for the last 200 years it's just been all downhill, the state has just got bigger and bigger. Um, and actually that's, that's wrong in my view. Uh, there was a big argument about a year ago in this, about this in the United States where a friend of mine, David Bowers from the Cato Institute, uh, said you know, that this was the kind of thing that got libertarians in the United States a bad name because the argument essentially was, oh, we are all free in the 1880s and we're much less free now. And David said, look, this is ridiculous. If you're a woman or an African-American in particular, you're definitely not going to think that you are less free now than you were under Jim Crow and in a society where women didn't have property rights and couldn't vote and take part in the political process and so on. Uh, so he said, this is ridiculous. You have to sort of like try and weigh up gains against losses. It's a mixed story. And this sparked off a huge argument. Um, I have to say, I thought David won it hands down, and not because I'm sympathetic. Some of the people who argued against him were, quite frankly, preposterous, uh, I thought, especially Brian Kaplan, whose arguments about women's liberty in the 19th century were just off the wall, really. I like Brian, but he really screwed the pooch there. However, more seriously, the reason why libertarians tend to think that it's all downhill is because they focus on just one measure of political power, which is the amount of money the government spends. And if you look at that measure, things do look pretty grim, because most governments, the British government spent 10% of GDP, in 1900, um, and it now spends 50%. And you can draw similar graphs for most uh, Western states. Switzerland is the only major exception. Uh, Singapore is another exception, but not many. However, by other measures, the story is much more mixed. So for example, I mentioned that 200, 150 years ago, governments took an enormous interest in what your religious beliefs were. Now they don't. Um, governments used to regulate huge aspects of our sex life, and now they don't either. They are now trying to expand into areas like diet and lifestyle. Uh, but uh, we, we forget that in the 18th century and earlier, there were all these sumptuary laws that governments had, which controlled in incredible detail what kind of clothes you could wear, what kind of hats you, ha you could wear, all kinds of incredible daft laws about what kind of hat different social ranks could wear and who you had to take your hat off to. And, and how high you could lift, you had to lift your hat and all this kind of stuff. And what kind of, and so only aristocrats are supposed to wear clothes made of silk, for example. Um, and there were grades about the different kind of cloth that different people could wear. So sumptuary legislation um, was, which also regulated how much money you could spend on your wedding or a party. Uh, this was a major part of the legislative activity of most European states until the 18, 1820s or 1830s, really. So it's not, a, it's not a simple story of everything going to the dogs. Uh, we tend to, if you're a libertarian, you tend to be more struck by the areas in which political power is expanding, and you pay less attention, perhaps, to the areas where it's in decay or actually is in retreat. So then, to answer your question directly, what are the kind of areas where you might have political programs? I think there are, there are two major areas. One is to simply push back against these attempts to, uh, you know, manipulate us into changing the way we live or use actual coercion to do it. Uh, I think one of the most dangerous ideas at the moment is this whole idea of nudge, which David Cameron uh, is very keen on. Uh, libertarian paternalism, as its authors call it, which is a you know, bizarre uh, you know, contradiction in terms, basically. Um, but the, um, so that there's, there's, I think, strong room for simply you know, pushing back vigorously on, on those, those fronts. Uh, and I'm quite optimistic that we'll be able to do that, not least because the advocates on the other side are so utterly insufferable. 
quite frankly. Uh, the other area is the welfare state, um, and where I think actually I'm many most a lot of libertarians are extremely despondent and pessimistic about the prospect for uh, reducing what we now call the welfare state. But I actually think that uh, the prospects for significantly reducing the role of politics in several areas of that are very good, particularly in education, mainly because uh, the uh, existing education system is such a total mess. Well, I have another whole lecture about this. It's a mess if you think that its job is to actually give people knowledge and skills. Uh, once you realize that that's not its main job, you realize that it's actually brilliantly successful. Once you realize what its main per real purpose actually is. Uh, the real purpose of the contemporary education system is to take intelligent, inquisitive children and turn them into conformist dullards. Uh, and also, it's to, it's to basically, it's a brainwashing system. It's also about manipulating, uh, basically deciding who gets which kind of jobs. It's a filtering mechanism for rationing out access to high-paid, high-status jobs, uh, which it does reasonably effectively. So I'm actually quite com uh, optimistic about that. I also think that much of the welfare state is, A, at a breaking point in terms of its fiscal sustainability, but also uh, increasingly hostile. The problem is to put up an alternative. That's the, that's the challenge, really. Uh, simply saying you're going to do away with it is just going to scare the living daylights out of people who depend on it. You have to have, and you have to actually do in practice, as opposed to making speeches like the one I'm doing now, uh, practical alternatives. And you should also be radical. That's the other thing. I mean, my own view, for example, about education is that we should get rid of schools. I I'm a... Um, I'm, I'm a John Holt, Ivan Illich, Paul Goodman person on this. Uh, choice between schools is like choosing between which kind of coercive quasi-prison-like institution you send your children to. Uh, you know, we should be thinking much more radically than that. Uh, and uh, you know, that, that's the kind of thing I think we could, we could push on. And you should always be, you know, I'm always, the, the way to be, think about this is, okay, don't pay any attention to all these people who tell you that public choice means you're never going to win anything. Think about getting rid of the Corn Laws. Uh, here you had an economic policy which was central to the fiscal basis of the British state uh, and to the uh, economic policy of the British state, which was supported by and gave enormous income to the most powerful social group in the country, uh, the great landowning class who dominated Parliament at the time, uh, and were, you know, they were the ruling class, quite simply, and a small concentrated interest group. They held a meeting in Manchester at the York Hotel to set up an organisation to campaign against them. How many people do you think turned up to that first meeting? Eight. Just eight people. Uh, two people sent their apologies, and they then turned up for the second meeting, which got 20 people. That was Richard Cobden and John Bright. Uh, Bright was ill and Cobden was on travelling in Italy when the first meeting was held. Within eight years, they'd built a mass movement and they'd swept away the Corn Laws. And they did that by being radical and intransigent, as well as by making very powerful arguments, which persuaded, uh, which changed the whole political culture of Britain. It became political suicide to run on a protectionist platform uh, for almost 100 years after that. And you can think also about the way slavery was abolished. When the British Anti-Slavery Society was set up in a pub in South London, it was only uh, eight or nine guys again. You know, people like Thomas Clarkson, and Granville Sharp and the rest who met in that pub in South London and set up this uh, uh, society. And they campaigned again against an amazingly powerful, concentrated and entrenched interest. But they managed to abolish the slave trade in 1806 and finally in 1833 they got rid of slavery in the British Empire. So, you know, you should not think that the odds are against you. Uh, there's, there's lots of evidence from history that you can do things. Particularly if you're prepared to be radical, as I say. That's the uh, part of the... And it also helps so, to align yourself with, uh, you know, 
large social movements or interests. Any other questions there? Yeah? Is that in the beginning that one of the conclusions of libertarianism is that you must require a minimal amount? Is that in the beginning that one of the conclusions of libertarianism is that you must require a minimal amount? You didn't provide a standard for ascertaining what is a minimal Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good point. I mean, one of the things is this, is that... Um, some people tell you libertarians believe in limited government, but that actually is nonsense because everyone believes in limited government. Uh, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe the North Korea, maybe Kim you know, Jong-un or whatever his name is, believes in unlimited government, but, or Pol Pot did, but uh, you know, virtually everyone thinks that there are some things the government shouldn't do. The question is where, you know, where are the limits? So I'm sure Obama thinks that there's the free limits on government, very much so. He would be horrified at the idea that the government should be you know, using 90% of GDP, I'm sure. He just thinks that the limits are larger. So it isn't a question of limited government. It's a question of severely limited government, if you will. So can you define what we mean by minimal government? Well, there are two ways you could do that. One way is to say, pick some sort of share of national income and say that that's what we mean. A lot of people would say, well, say 10% would be minimal government. Certainly no more than 25%, but probably 10%. That's a common kind of rule of thumb figure. I think the more, the more appropriate way, though, is to say not so much the size of government in terms of the share of GDP it gives, but the range of activities that are thought to be appropriate for the political decision-making process. Think of it this way. There are two ways we can decide about how to allocate resources in the broadest sense in the world. One is for the decisions to be made by individuals, and those individual decisions are then aggregated through a number of mechanisms, through markets, through associations, through legal entities like corporations, a whole range of things. But ultimately, you have individual decisions which are aggregated to make a kind of collective decision, and nobody really knows or plans or intends what that collective outcome is. The other way is to use the political process to allocate the resources. And in some sense, the outcome is intended, although even there, there's a lot of unintended outcomes. Uh, so the argument should be, what areas of life should be subject to the collective decision-making process as opposed to the disaggregated uh, individual decision-making process. And the libertarian position, I think, to, for those who are not anarchists, because I say for those who are anarchists, the answer is, well, there shouldn't be any government. But for those who are not anarchists, the argument is that it should be only those forms of government and hence of coercion that are essential and necessary for the other voluntary transactions to take place, which basically means defense against aggressors, both foreign and domestic. So basically um, a court system to resolve disputes and uh, national defense, whatever you want to call it, something of that sort. Basically a system of law, basic laws or framework institutions and rules. Uh, and probably that would be it. So that would be what you'd be talking about. So those would be the uh, th those would be the kind of that would be the uh, you know real minimal argument. There are some who go further. There were some who would say there would have to be some kind of basic minimal guarantee of subsistence, for example. Now that's that has been quite a common historical position to argue that while the government should not redistribute income in large amounts, it, there should be some kind of ultimate backstop public responsibility for ensuring that nobody literally starves to death. Uh, that so a minimum. That was John Locke's position, for example, and it's been the position of many others. So you can argue about exactly where you draw the line, but I think the crucial mechanism is to say, what are the areas of life that 
uh, should be subject to the political decision-making process. And when you sort of go down the list of things that government at the moment does, uh, you can see there's a whole lot of things that would get struck off if you apply that, that principle. Uh, and you'd, you'd be left with what essentially most people think of as the core functions of government. Like I say, there are some which are arguable, which some libertarians would accept and others would not. So, as I said, I already mentioned one, minimal state welfare, guaranteed subsistence. Uh, infrastructure is another one. I personally don't think that you need to have the government do that. Some people think you do for efficiency reasons, basically. One that's difficult for me um, is uh, certain forms of public health measure, like compulsory vaccination. I think you probably have to do that through the government. Because the problem being that if you leave it to voluntary choice, you will probably not get the herd immunity effect. So that's a hard one for me, but I think you probably do have, have to have an element of compulsion in um, things like vaccination and certain kinds of public health measures. What but, you know, can argue that. What mechanism would you imagine to get us from the point we're in now to that point? Well... Do you imagine a bunch of libertarians forming a government and then gradually... No, I don't. Um, I don't. I don't think so, actually. Uh, one of the... There's another whole lecture I have about this, basically, but... One of the things that libertarians get very depressed about is they have arguments where they say, oh, how are we going to shrink the state? And my argument, and you say, okay, you know, you have this paradoxical view that the way to do it is to get power and then somehow destroy the power once you've captured it. The trouble is, history and common sense suggest that ain't going to happen, basically. So I think that's asking the wrong question. The question we should be asking is not how do we shrink the government, it's how do we grow voluntary relations? So, in other words, instead of thinking, how do we get the state out of education, the thing to think about is, how do you grow non-state forms of education? Uh, people talk a lot about the way in which government provision of certain things crowds out private alternatives. Uh, the thing to do is to look for a strategy whereby private action crowds out government uh, supply in various ways. Uh, another point also to realise um, is... And this comes back to the point about agency. A friend of mine, Tyler Cowan, is constantly making this point. Tyler says, okay, the US government in 1900 spent less than 10% of US GDP. US government now at every level spends about 45% of GDP, if you add together federal, state, county levels. But, says Tyler, the US economy has grown so much since 1900 that the 55% that is in private hands now is much, much bigger than the 90% that was in private hands in 1900. So the actual agency that private people have now in terms of effective ability to do things is much greater than was the case even with the really small government of the uh, late 19th, 20th century. And so what that means is uh, that you can, it makes it easier for actually, for people to uh, use that agency they now have to provide things privately and hopefully that's will be the strategy to push back what government does. So as I say, we're looking at the wrong way around. We shouldn't be thinking about strategies for shrinking the state. Um, it's more a matter of producing antibodies to the state, if you will. Um, you know, private action and growing the non-state sector in such a way that you'll actually push it back. That's, um, which is a you know, whole different strategy. So it's... Uh, Think about what one of the long-term goals, an example, one of the long-term goals of the libertarian movement in 19th century Britain was to disestablish the established church, uh, which in some ways I wish they'd managed to achieve. Um, you know, a lot of the nonsense we're having to put up with at the moment is because they didn't. However, there, were, there was all this kind of campaigns to you know, win a liberal majority in Parliament and they would disestablish the Anglican church. Never happened for all sorts of 
political reasons. But the alternative was that you both grew, if you like, the non-conformist part of the British population, who weren't Anglicans anyway, and you also basically grew the amount of non-belief. And so the result is that now, sure, we still have an established church. Does anybody care about this? Well, apart from the Archbishop of Canterbury, I'm sure he does. Um, you know, it, not many, I suspect. So that's an example of the kind of process I'm talking about, really. In that case, it's the growth, it's the growth of, uh, you know, like I say, unbelief. But you can think of that in terms of the growth of, you know, all kinds of other mechanisms. For ex another example, concrete one. Um, when I was, you know, very young, I hate, I'm not going to tell people how long ago this was, but I do remember that the only way you could get glasses pretty much was by uh, going to the National Health Service, and you got these kind of uh, black fra plastic frame spectacles that Jarvis Cocker wears. Um, and because I'm severely short-sighted, I, I used to have to go through a huge number of these when I was a kid in the 60s. Uh, and basically, that was the only way you could get glasses. If you were short-sighted or had some other uh, sight defect, you had to go to the National Health Service. Well, what happened then was that the Thatcher government deregulated the opticians market and Specsavers and Dalton Aitchison came along. And now virtually nobody gets. Uh, the state is now a residual supplier of spectacles and things like that. Uh, the bulk of it is done through the private sector. So that's a very small example of the kind of process I think you could e extrapolate elsewhere. Yeah. Are there any um, countries that you'd hold up as, um, as having uh, libertarian policies in particular areas? Are there um, any um, countries that you'd hold up as, um, as having uh, libertarian policies in particular areas? Uh, problems with in some ways. One of those is Singapore, for example. Singapore has a, sm a small government. It spends about 20 to 25% of GDP. Um, it, and it has a welfare system which in many ways works very well based upon forced saving, but into accounts that you own, which you're allowed to pass on to your uh, assigns or heirs on your death. So not like the kind of stuff we have in pension systems everywhere else in the world, for example. The trouble is that's associated not only with the well-known social authoritarianism, uh, but also with a highly sort of paternalistic and restrictive political system. So I find some aspects of that attractive, but I find the whole thing it's embedded in deeply unattractive. Switzerland is another place, um, although you should not generalize, of course, because the whole point about Switzerland is that it's, it's highly federal. Um, and some cantons are extremely libertarian, other, like the Vaud or Zug. Other cantons, like Geneva, for example, are social democratic. But the greater benefit in Switzerland, of course, is that, you know, you just move. I mean, uh, you, you know, cantons are really, really small. You just go from one canton to another. If you want to live in a social democratic canton, you go and live in Geneva or Bern. And if you want to live in a you know, more conservative one, you can go somewhere else, um, the Jura. And similarly, you can go to places where it's, it's effectively a minimal government libertarian canton. So Switzerland is probably the closest one. The Swiss also have the, the kind of national defence system I like, which again is problematic for me as a libertarian because it involves conscription, but it's still the best one, which is you know the citizens' army model because um, they don't have a standing army. They have about 3,000 full-time soldiers, but uh, otherwise it's just that every Swiss adult male has to do military training and then has to keep all his infringements kit in his, his house, um, you know, which is the system I'd like. The problem is it's, uh, it requires... Um, conscription, which makes it problematic for me, but I'm probably prepared to take that hit in order to get the other benefits that come with that. Steve, does it require subscription, um, 
it's a conscription vote? I, I think it probably it probably could. The way the way you would have to the way you could move away from the Swiss system is to have what they did in the 19th century United States, where you could uh, buy out your obligation right. and pay someone else to serve on your behalf. But there, that does raise all kinds of rather difficult moral questions, actually. Uh, and the other problem is there is a free rider problem, undoubtedly, which is that if you don't have conscription, the danger is that uh, the only people who will actually volunteer to take part in the military. Uh, protection services are the people who like to go away at weekends and you know play at being soldiers basically, uh, and you won't have enough of them. Having said that, I mean you know there's no doubt at the moment military military goods national service is enormously oversupplied worldwide. You know the, we we estimate at the IEA that the British state is spending about eight times more than it realistically needs to on national defence, and God knows what the United States is doing given that it spends more money on arms than the rest of the planet put together. Um, which, which leads you to wonder what they're defending themselves against. Yes. Maybe those Martians that Paul Krugman wants to have in, as invaders. Yeah. Any other questions? Well, thank you all very much. Um, and uh, for the, if, if you're we do lots of things at the IEA, by the way. Uh, we have regular events we, uh, and publications. Uh, if you're interested in learning about what we're doing or hearing news of events, so you can come along to them, then I've got a sheet here with, that you can sign up uh, to get our electronic newsletter, which will tell you about when the events are. So we had David Friedman, for example, who I gather came up and gave a talk here as well in January. Uh, and we've got, we have regular talks. We typically have about one or two talks a week, actually, uh, during the, the main part of the year. Uh, so it's well worth being on our mailing list to uh, know what's going on. See if you want to make the short trip down to London at any time. Shorter for you than me, anyway. Uh, so thanks very much. <laughs>